You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. I am so thankful. Uh, Pastor Nick last week was preaching to us and preached from Acts chapter 3 and talked a little bit about miracles. And the last uh, service that I uh, officiated, that I was here, was, of course, uh, Christmas Eve. And I, I talked about, do you believe in miracles? So we kind of have a theme going here of, of the miraculous power of God. And today, we're not going to jump into James just yet. If you bought that little book, we'll do that next week, okay? We'll start our journey in James. But today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Verses 43 through 47, and we kind of rewind the tape a little bit, and we talk a little bit about what's going on right before that Acts 3 encounter that Nick shared with us last week, and I believe that it's going to tie together in a marvelous way because God is wanting to do a great work in our midst. He is truly up to something good, and I look forward to sharing it with you this morning. But what I'd like to do right now is have you stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word. So stand up one more time. Then I'll let you sit down for a few minutes, unless the Spirit moves and you want to run down the aisle or whatever you need to do. But let's take a look at verse 42, okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, familiar words, the capstone of a familiar passage, but I'm praying that what we are familiar with here in the historical sense, we will become familiar with in a radical, personal way as the body of Christ. Listen to this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe, or your translation may say fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now we're going to pray again, and we're going to ask the Lord to to light up our hearts with this word. And I'm going to ask you again, pray with me, that if there is any cloud in this room, over any heart, any veil, absconding the view of our glorious Jesus, that that will be removed in the next few moments. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask right now, boldly in your name, That whatever is keeping us from hearing the word today, that, Lord, you will remove that barrier, that hurdle, that distraction. God, we need to see you with our eyes, both eyes wide open. We need to hear you with both ears. Lord, we need to hear, Lord, clearly what you're saying to us as your church. And for those who are here today who are searching for truth that, that may not know you yet, Lord, but you are knocking on the door of their heart. Lord, let them open that door today so that we will have a year where every day we'll see people being saved from their sins and delivered into the kingdom of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wow, when we think about church, what do we think about? If I were to have you to just start making a list, the the first words that came to your mind as it relates to that word church and what you think of, what what comes to your mind, what you uh, begin to consider, 
Many of us, we, we see a, a brick-and-mortar building. When I say church, we, we see the little church where we grew up, or maybe even this church, if it's been our home church all these years, that's what we think of. We think of church. Maybe you think of church as, as Sunday school teaching or, or preaching or you know, some ministry. All of those things are, are good and in some way define what the church is. But my concern is, is that when we begin to define the church, the word that's too far down the list is the word relationship. Or relationships. I'm afraid that, that that word doesn't make maybe the top five or maybe not even the top ten. And here's the warning. The further down the list the word relationship is, when you're thinking about the church, then it is very likely that you have an unbiblical view of the church. It's about relationships. Obviously, that relationship that we have vertically with our Heavenly Father, but also the relationship that we have with one another. Today, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we look at a chapter of Scripture that is, quite frankly, filled with the miraculous, what we tend to do is we tend to think that these miracles are firmly in their place, and rightly so, here in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago. We know that this happened. If we're believers here today, we believe that this is true. But what we need to begin to believe is that what Acts chapter 2 describes is not just a, a matter of history, but a matter of the church today that we will encounter these very things. Now notice, verse 42 doesn't start off with anything that's anything near fireworks, spiritual fireworks. I mean, come on, apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread together, and prayer. Those are, are simple, basic elements of church and ministry. I mean, obviously, apostolic teaching means that we, we're taking the Word of God and we're preaching it, we're, we're telling people the gospel, Fellowship, though, isn't that interesting? Breaking of bread together and prayer. I want you to notice that these verses that we're looking at today are not individual in nature, but they're corporate. Every single one of these words, in one way or another, has either a plural sense or it's talking about the church together. Too often when it comes to spiritual disciplines and, and the pursuit of Christ, we think of it in individualistic terms because we as, as Western thinkers, as, as American thinkers, we often think about spirituality in a very individualistic sense. But notice not in this chapter. Notice how there is a spirit of fellowship. Verses 43 through 47, I want you to catch words like this. Just look right now at your copy of Scripture and notice these words. We're together held all things in common, distributing the proceeds to all or to those who had need, attending the temple, notice the word, together, breaking bread in their homes, that's, that's plural. All these things that are mentioned here are predicated on having fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church first fellowships with the Holy Spirit and then they fellowship with one another. And it's something that trickles through the entire congregation. Listen, we don't just need a fireball in the pulpit when we have a bunch of polar bears in the pew. We all need to get excited about what God is doing. And, and every time I read this passage, it's not like Peter's the only one that's excited about Jesus. Notice, it's everybody. 
Go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and notice that they were all in one place together. Look at verses 2 through 4, and they all experienced the wind and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 5 through 13, and it says literally, all heard the gospel message in their own language, in their own heart language. Notice, God isn't working in isolated spots. He's working in a mass way. He's taking a group of people, even like a, a group gathered here in this room, where not just one or two of you say, oh, you know, it's kind of a good day or whatever. But we all say, wow, we were together in the Holy Spirit. We were together in God. We were together in Christ. We felt the power flowing through this place. And it wasn't like just one of us felt it or two or three or a trickle that might come down to the altar at the end. But we all know that we've been in the presence of God. That's what happens when God gets cranked up. Now, I want to say this to you. A zealous striving for the spirit of fellowship should saturate the life of our church. It sure did the early church. The first believers stressed this organic element, this being together as human beings, as opposed to some inorganic, like a building or a place. They were people-centered, not programmatic. They were personal, not impersonal. They were relational, not process-oriented. So much of what we think about is successful church where, where, where you know, we'll watch the, the most successful recent preacher, whoever is out there in the world today that's really doing good and growing their church in a big way, and we're trying to find the process. What's the plan? What's the book they're reading? What's the, what's the strategy that they are employing? And what we forget is if God is really moving, it has nothing to do with human strength or strategy. It has everything to do with the power of God, a power that shakes us and breaks us free of the chains of sin. That's what the world needs today. The book of Acts tells the story of a small church getting big. A small church becoming a large church. I mean, there were 3,000 souls. Look at verse 41, our, the verse right before our text. There were 3,000 souls in the church. They were already a mega church before the second chapter of Acts is over. Do you see that? We talk about mega churches today. Listen. The church has always been mega. It's always been big because when God works, he does big things. He, he saves souls, and he doesn't just save them at a trickle. He saves them in a flood, and that's what revival is, and that's what God wants to do in our midst. God shows us his power here. The spirit of fellowship is so funny because when we think of that word fellowship, ah, you know, yeah, of course you would say, well, you know, in church we get together and have some fellowship Going over and have coffee together, it's fellowship. We, we, see, we seem to, to negate it or to push it down as something of less importance. But look at the text again with me. Just look at the text. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we all go, oh, yeah, we got to have good, solid preaching. we got to preach the gospel. we got to make sure we're preaching the word. But notice the very next words. And the fellowship. I mean, we can preach orthodox, conservative, Bible-believing kind of sermons. We can be right in what we say, but if we are not opening our hearts to one another in fellowship, we're missing at least half of the equation. Our togetherness is as important as our orthodoxy. Being willing to share our lives and disciple one another is not a secondary role of the church, but it's primary. It's right here in the foundation of the church. May the Spirit help us grasp what the early church had, this spirit of fellowship. And I'm going to tell you, as a historian, as a person who reads a lot of history, I'm tired of revivals being something I read about in the past. I'm really tired about reading about what God did in past ages. 
This morning I had somebody tell me about the good old days when, <laughs> our music people will love this, when only, we only sang hymns. That's when it was the golden age of the church. That's not what makes a golden age. No matter, no matter what we're singing, as long as it's Christ exalting. I mean, we, we get, we get these, these things confused. We, we need to understand that what we need is something powerful, something life-changing. Listen, if it is a revival, you won't miss it. My God doesn't do little things. My, my God is not small. God is, is in Christ, and he is the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he shows up, people know about it. And when he shows up in your heart, the people around you will know about it, but pretty soon the whole world knows too. I'm going to focus on four words today with you. Togetherness, generosity, hospitality, and the word miraculous. I think when we talk about the spirit of fellowship from Acts chapter 2, those are the four primary words. Togetherness, generosity, hospitality, and miraculous. Let's begin with that word togetherness. The spirit of fellowship is togetherness. We've already mentioned that the church is 3,000 strong. And you can imagine that as a church gets that big, the building of relationships becomes essential, critical. All these brand new believers needed to be discipled. I'm going to tell you, they didn't have an internet to, to tap into. They didn't have a, a literature, uh, you know, like Lifeway or something like that to contact. Hey, you know, we've, we've had 3,000 people come. Do you have some good literature for us, Nashville? Nashville was just a bunch of trees, okay, 2,000 years ago. There's nothing there. There was no, there was no mission board. There was no, there was no literature. But there were people who had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of them were illiterate. And they couldn't read at all. But they had encountered a holy God that had changed them from sinners into saints. And they would just share what they had heard from the apostles and share the power and the glory of God. And let me say this, today we have the internet, and today we have all this literature, and yet we're not doing what was fundamental in that day, which is we're just not sharing our hearts. God is asking us to be together in the gospel, yes, to, to come and, and celebrate what we have in Jesus, but we need to realize that that's all for discipling, for discipleship, so that we can go out and make a difference in the world. Now let me just say this, generally speaking, people like to be part of groups, that's why there are clubs. That's why there are organizations uh, from all the way back to the beginning of time when people could gather together in groups for fellowship, for, for uh, togetherness. They would do that. But let me say this. Even though we have a drive to be in groups, we are often driven crazy because of the drama that comes out of gathering together. If you get one or two people together or three or four people, drama will be there also. Now we know that two or three are gathered, the Holy Spirit will be there. Let me tell you, the enemy knows that, and so he knows when two or three people are gathered together, if he can bring drama, you'll miss the Spirit. Amen? I'm just going to say this, and if you don't like it, forgive me. But I think this is the, the reality. When we talk to people about the church, so many people will say they don't want to go to church because they were there, and they'll tell you some story. And really what they're saying is, I don't have time for that drama. If I'm going to have drama, I have it at work, I have it at school, I have it with my family... Just got through the holidays. Hey, hallelujah, amen. And I've got plenty of drama in my life. I don't need that in my worship. And every time I go to church, it seems like there's this drama. People are upset about the music. People are upset about the preaching. People are, are saying, well, we should have done this and we should have done that. Drama, drama, drama. When you get people together, you're either going to be filled with the Spirit or filled with drama. And that's a problem. Because when you have drama, you are not going to be together. 
Have you noticed how the world is constantly trying to set us against one another? I mean, all one has to do is, is, is read a bit, surf a bit on the web, and there are a million ways that you can find out, well, my church, my, my church isn't doing this, and my church is broken in this way, and we, we don't do this, and we don't do that, and what about this, and what about that? And, and there's always something that's causing me to look at others with suspicion and to say, well, I don't know. I don't know about that person. I don't know about their heart. Well, guess what? They don't know about yours either. And I'm going to tell you this. The only way that we can come together is by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of fellowship is not like goodwill in my heart toward you and that makes a difference. No, the Holy Spirit has to convict my heart where I love you more than I love your drama and vice versa. Because we all bring a, mo- a measure, a modicum of our own drama to the equation. Now, some of you, I know it's just the furthest thing from your mind, but let it, let it sink in because we all bring some drama one way or the other. We need to understand that in these moments where, where God is working, the, the spiritual warfare element, the enemy is always trying to cause us to think about ourselves. But notice again the text. Life together was the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Do you think there was any drama in the first century church? There was plenty of drama, but they loved one another enough to fellowship Now, this word fellowship is one of those Greek words that if you've been in church long enough, you know the Greek word agape, love, and you probably know the Greek word koine or koinonia, which means fellowship. It occurs 14 times roughly, uh, or 19 times roughly in the New Testament. It's one of the few times in Acts that the word appears. Paul uses it most often, 14 times he uses it. And that word fellowship is a key concept in the early church. They were together. They were fellowshipping. But I want you to realize that this whole idea of fellowship is about spiritual connectedness. So fellowship is all about connectedness. But here is an important qualifier. We are talking about connected by gospel grace. And if you are not connecting, then you are not growing. So if you are neglecting togetherness, I can tell you this. You may be the smartest person in this room. You may know more about theology. But if you are not connecting with other believers, you are not growing as God would have you. Your investment in others and their investment in you is what this passage is emphasizing. In my notes here, I have highlighted bits. And that's where it's like, hey, Jeremy, don't miss this. If there's a word that needs to be underlined here for all of us, it is fellowship. Now, I know COVID-19 has wrecked havoc in our lives. Even if you are the kind of person that likes to go out and have, have meals with people, I mean, we've been told that we, we can't do that, and, and I understand, and I, I'm not trying to, to be a rebel here and say break the law or anything like that or your conscience, but at some point we have to get back to getting together. We have to invite people to, to go to lunch with us. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to be in such a big hurry that we don't slow down long enough to get to know our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, in our culture today, the world is trying to divide us up into identity groups. ID politics has become kind of the thing. Everybody kind of has to have their group. And here's what the world wants to do. The world wants you to be in a specific group where all you can see are the differences between you and others. That's what the world wants to do today. Identity politics is one of the great poisons that the devil has poured out on this land. And here's why. Because all that is doing is causing us to look for reasons to not like each other. 
Christianity does the opposite and does not allow our differences to separate us. We see those differences as strengths. And what we find is our commonalities in Christ. When we have Christ in our hearts, we have everything we need. Your identity is not your race. It is not your economic status. It is in Christ. I'm going to break this thing. I thought it was stronger than that. The world wants to divide us. The world will divide us with, with, with styles of music, with styles of preaching, with, with authors or who we're, who we're reading or whatever it is. No, don't let that happen. Let the Spirit bring us together. And when He does, it brings us to the second point. There is a spirit of generosity. The spirit of fellowship is generosity. When the Spirit breaks down the boundaries between brothers and sisters, here's what happens. There's generosity. Generosity in how we share our time, but also our resources. You'll just notice this, I think. The more you're away from Christ, you'll speak more in terms of mine and thine. Okay, this is mine, that is yours. But when the spirit of fellowship and togetherness builds, the spirit of generosity builds also, and we go from a mine-thine worldview to a his-ours worldview. You see the difference? It's all his. And when we understand that, then we can use what's his for our benefit. Now, the spirit of generosity here in this text, I think there are three key words. So here's a su- three subpoints here of this second point, And that is, when the spirit of generosity is at work, we'll see that it is spontaneous, it is voluntary, and it is ongoing. I want you to get those three words down. Spontaneous, voluntary, and ongoing. Now let's look at that first word, spontaneous. One gets the idea here that the brothers and sisters in Christ of this time were truly Uh, you know, united. And it seems like when we read this that they were willing just on the drop of a dime, literally, to sell all their possessions. Did you see that in the text? To give, give away everything they had for their brothers and sisters in Christ in need. Now we read that and we say, okay, what is that? What does that look like? Well, let me just give you a little bit, just real quick, some background. Those who have studied the, the first century world very carefully tell us this, that in the first century world, the top 2% of earners controlled two-thirds of the wealth. Two-thirds of the wealth were only controlled by just 2% of the population. And that's scary, but here's what's really scary when you look at the statistics. And scholars can do this. It's amazing what they can discover from the records. But basically, here's what it boils down to. 10% of the population that we're dealing with here in Acts 2 were one meal away from starvation every day day. 10%. One out of 10 souls that you would run into in the streets of Jerusalem were one day away from literal starvation. So when you look at this response, how it's immediate, it was life and death. The reason why these people gave up everything is because if they had not given up everything, literally every day people would die. That's why it was spontaneous. Now let me say this. We live in a land of plenty. We do not live in a a place where the bottom 10% of earners are one meal away from starvation. I give thanks to God that that children in low-income homes have meals to eat, that our, our schools are providing meals. You can complain about that or whatever, but I would rather see a kid have a belly full than a belly empty. 
And the church is going to have to step up their game because it shouldn't be the world doing this. It should be us. Now listen to me, until that happens, church, we're going to have to get real. We're going to have to be honest about the fact that many times we're seeing great need and we're not spontaneously giving when we need to. We are building bigger barns and, 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 and bigger grain storehouses and we're not giving to the Lord. Now I said earlier, I'm so thankful for this church and its generosity and I mean that. But I'm going to tell you this, I think we still spend too much time with the calculator when it comes to our giving. We need to ask the question, not what have I achieved the minimum amount? Have I, have I done my duty in terms of a tithe or an offering? We need to ask the Lord in the moment, Lord, what would you have me do? And we need to believe when he lays that on our heart, which he will, that we in that moment have to give. I believe that what we need to realize is, is that a church at its best is looking out for those who are most vulnerable. And we're going to show in this year, in this coming year, as we go through the, the, the book of James, I'm going to define that for you, what the most vulnerable means in our context. And we're going to do everything in our power to attack it. And when the Spirit moves, move. But know this, the Spirit doesn't force us. It's that second word, voluntary. You will not find in the New Testament any kind of like pressure to give. There's one exception, that's the rich young ruler. And the only reason Jesus does that is because that was his idol. In every other instance, in other words, if that idol doesn't get broke down, the man doesn't get saved. And we know the man didn't get saved. He, he clung to his idol. But in every other instance of giving in the New Testament, it is voluntary. And you'll notice here that the people did it with willful, cheerful hearts to any as had need. Verse 45 they were doing it because the Spirit led them. And when the Spirit speaks, we have a choice to be obedient or disobedient. And if the Spirit is telling you to be generous in some way and you say no, that's on you. That's on me. Finally, the generosity was ongoing. I won't get into the, to the grammar here, but the language here is a continual. That in other words, it wasn't like one day... They gave to as any had need. Notice verse 45 again. The verbiage there is, is continuing. In other words, they continued every day to look for need and they were willing to give. Sacrificial living is very hard. It is not natural, but it is what we are called to do together. God is calling each of us in our unique financial positions to be uniquely generous for the kingdom of God. And too often when we're sitting around and we're counting the nickels and the dimes and we're saying, oh, we want to do this ministry, but we don't have the money, we're forgetting that our king owns it all. And we're living as though our king is only giving us a small stipend. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He doesn't give a little. He gives a lot. For his kingdom's sake, we need to be generous. Well, what is keeping us from this generosity? Whatever it is, we have to let it go. Quickly, let's look at the spirit of fellowship in terms of its hospitality. The world is full of fences, walls, and doors. The human instinct is to keep other people out, to have our little kingdom, our casa, our home, and just push others away. Even when we aren't overtly trying to keep people out, it seems like we're rarely inviting anybody in. 
Now, I know that what I'm saying here is, is charged with politics. Get away. Don't, don't think about borders of countries. Listen, we have to think about security. The Bible never tells us to expose ourselves to unnecessary danger. Do you lock your door at night? Yes. Because it's a smart thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But the question isn't, do you lock your door at night? But the question is, do you open your door during the day to your neighbor, to your coworkers, to your church friends? You see, we live lives too often that we're, we, we say because we're busy that we don't have time. But really what we're doing is, is we're locking ourselves in and we are not allowing others to come in. Don't put up fences, walls, and doors to keep Jesus in and others out These individuals in Acts chapter 2, they're not building those kinds of walls. They are working very hard to break them down. This is a spirit of fellowship, of hospitality. It's the joy of sharing with the other. It takes courage to invite people into your home. But when you constantly say no to that, really many times you're giving in to your fears. Having people over, you know, you got to clean up. You know, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's messy. i got news for you. Relationships are messy. The most messy relationship of all is the one Jesus has with you. Hello. Just think how messy that relationship over the years has been with you. How many times you've said yes and then said no. How many times you, you felt the Lord move and then you said, well, maybe that was just me. How many times have we closed the door? In Christ, you should have more open doors in your life than closed ones. Driving home to southern Illinois, we go very near to um, a place that is familiar in history, uh, New Madrid, Missouri. A great earthquake occurred there in 1812. They say it was so great that it rung church bells in Boston. Let that sink in for a minute. The ground had waves like the sea, so they said. It destroyed everything in a part of the country where there was really nothing here yet. Well, there's a lot more here now. Can you imagine if another great cataclysmic event occurred like this? What would happen? Well, here's the thing. If our homes and our businesses and our churches were all rubble, one thing we would still have is each other. And it would require us to be hospitable, to share every single resource, to to go back to basics, to, as a community, give everything extra away so that people would have shelter and clothing and food. Friends, I'm not asking for an earthquake in, in a literal sense, but I'm praying that the Spirit will provide an earthquake for our hearts where we will begin to share like this, that we will open our doors now and not wait for the calamity. 2020 taught us what a minor calamity can be because, listen, what happened? People who are saying, oh, 2020 was the worst year ever, come on. There's some of you who remember the the 1940s where thousands of American boys and, and boys from around the world were dying every day. Many of you remember the Vietnam War and how many precious souls were lost year after year. And we're, we're talking about the worst year ever? That shows you how decadent, how lazy, how, how we just expect every day of our lives, not just a year, every day of our lives to go our way all the time. What would happen if we had true calamity? The spirit of hospitality would be the only hope we'd have to stay together. I'm talking about some strong stuff. I'm talking about the need for miracles. 
Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That word all can also mean fear. Let me tell you why there was a little bit of fear. It's because when the Spirit shows up and begins to do works in our hearts, it is beyond words and description. I'm going to tell you, if, if the Spirit shows up here like I believe that He can, I think that what we'll find is, is that there will be many in our community that have no tolerance for that. People in our community are probably okay with us being a church that, that, that doesn't do much and isn't having much salt and light in the community. But if we start making a difference, all of a sudden we'll become enemy number one. Now let me just say this. Let me just brag on a brother and a church here in town. Listen, some of you have watched how the enemy has attacked James River Church here in our community. Every time anything's gone wrong, it's made like the front page news. Now listen, I, I'm not Assemblies of God. I'm a Baptist by choice. But I'm telling you, they preach the gospel there. They love people there, and they're impacting their community, and the devil doesn't like it. You know, when the devil's leaving us alone, it may be because we're not doing anything to attract his attention. Let's keep that in mind, because I believe when the miracles of God happen, there is divine beauty, and divine beauty is a threat to human power. When the world and the powers that be and the godless powers of this world see the power of God at work, they are jealous of it. They do not like divine beauty. And if we are modeling divine beauty, we will see spiritual ugliness. And that's okay. I'm asking you, church, to, to believe that we can break out of a box that we put ourselves in. The church's secret from day one was the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we do church as though we can do all things? I would say probably not. It's been a long time since we as a people, and I'm not talking about just Ridgecrest, but the churches of America have come together to ask for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, believing that he can do something. Church, when it is mundane, that's not the way it's supposed to be. God has something better for his bride. You are the bride of Christ, and he has something beautiful for you. And if life has become predictable and normal and bland, that is not what the Holy Father, the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ wants for his bride. He wants something special for us. If Christ is in your heart, there will be miracles in your life. God can join us together across great elements of diversity, that he can bring selfish people and make them generous. This is what he does. He gives us the ability to be hospitable. These are all miracles. You see, the world is hungry for something more than what life has become. And it is the bread of life in Jesus that makes all this possible. The spirit of fellowship leads to the conversion of lost souls. People get saved when the church gets right. That's what I'm asking. As we conclude this service, I'm asking for two things. I'm asking you as the church, if you're a born-again believer in this church, let's get right. Fellowship, fellowshipping with one another and with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when we get right, people get saved. I'm not asking you to have some great dinners together and then leave it at that. I'm not asking for us to just be a country club here where, where membership has its privileges. I'm saying that if we will love one another and disciple one another and care for one another, that is attractive to even a lost world. We will see lost people. We need to believe that God is able to do all of these things and more. He has a great plan for this church. Sounds like even Siri thinks so. 
God has a great plan for this church. He has a great plan for his people. He loves you so very much. So let's believe that he is able. Now, right now, I just want to stop, and we're going to conclude. Listen, Jesus died for your sins, brothers and sisters. The cross was for you. And right now, I can feel the cloud coming down because it's the invitation. The veil is dropping. And many of you, what you've heard maybe has stirred your heart. But now when it's time to move, you're going to stay put. You're going to have a thousand reasons to say no to God. But let me give you one reason to say yes to him. Because Jesus died for you. Okay? He died for you. Listen to me. Listen. He loves you. He is crying out for you. The distractions are all around us. Even right now. You hear them? I do. The distractions. This is not a mistake. I got into my car this morning. and I've been praying for God to lift the fog. And you know what I drove through all the way here? Fog. The enemy's not going to win. Open your heart right now. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.